This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Emma Jane, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks, Cheryl. Emma is a writer and associate professor based at the University of New South Wales. She spent nearly 25 years working in Australian print and broadcast media before becoming an academic specialising in sex and gender, misogyny on the internet, the future of work and the social impacts of emerging technology. She has presented her research at the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, amongst other places. This is her 11th book. It's called Diagnosis Normal, Living with Abuse, Undiagnosed Autism and COVID-Grade Crazy. She breaks down many societal taboos in this darkly funny memoir. Well, it's certainly very dark, but it's also very honest and brutal. Yeah, Cheryl, uh, when I I was very nervous about writing uh, such a personal account of my life and particularly since it was the first time I've spoken about a lot of very difficult things that had happened to me in my past. Um, And so I did what I think many writers do to get around, you know, writer's block or, you know, these types of um, analysis paralysis of their own work. Um, I gave, sort of gave myself permission to write whatever I wanted. And, you know, the deal I made with myself was that, you know, later I'd go back and edit out anything that I was really uncomfortable with. And I ended up leaving nearly everything in. Like there was a few bits and pieces that had to come out for legal reasons. But it turned out that sort of letting myself just, you know, what do they say? It's just a matter of like writing. It's just as simple as sitting down and cutting open a vein. Like that that was the process. So talk to me about you and where you grew up and how you came to writing this book. Let's go right back. Yeah, so I I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, so very working class family and then moved to a small country town when I was seven. And uh, that was sort of the start of in some ways, the end of my life, because unlike many girls in Australia, I was the victim of sexual abuse. It's one of the the terrible double binds of trying to disclose something as difficult and personal as child abuse, uh, is this type of legal bind, as Grace Tame has expressed so eloquently during um, her period as Australian of the Year last year. So, yeah, I... It was devastating um, and it continued for a lengthy period of time. I eventually caused a lot of problems for me um, in terms of mental illness as a child and I eventually, I was very good at school, but I eventually ran away from that town and ran away from school before I finished year 12 and spent a year sort of waitressing and sort of 
trying to stay afloat as an underaged high school runaway in Sydney. I'm not a good time in my life. And then I, I'm a really tenacious person and I somehow, you know, at the end of that year picked myself up, took myself to TAFE, did a, a sort of alternative matriculation degree and then got a job as a cadet journalist on the local paper. And that, and that sort of kick-started a very long career in, in journalism. Did your parents know? Uh, no, not explicitly, no. Um, but I think that with a lot of uh, child abuse situations, there, there are a lot of red flags. And I guess this, we're talking for me a period of time back in the 1970s when there wasn't the awareness that there is now about what the telltale signs are. Uh, I, I subsequently found out, though, that this fellow was a, a serial offender. I've spoken to other girls that he abused. And so, you know, he, again, like Grace Tame's offender, this particular guy was active and abusing for a very long time. And, for instance, when I was in third class, and, and I was very confused and distressed by what was happening. I did, and this often happens with kids, is because little kids lack the words. Like we can't say, well, this is happening because it doesn't, it's just this terrible things happening that's making me feel awful and hurts and whatever, but that we don't have the words at that age. And so I was in school in class just doodling and I drew pictures of what was happening, um, which is something that young kids do a lot. It's one of the big um, telltale signs is um, are those sorts of anatomically correct drawings that a seven-year-old really shouldn't know how to draw basically. And I don't even remember why I drew them. I It was like they were drawing themselves. It was but I, I drew them and it was like, oh, God, how horrible, how yucky, because, again, like eight, I think I was eight, and I threw them in the bin. One of the school teachers at the school I was at found them and pulled the class up and held the drawings up and said, which disgusting child did these drawings? And I was petrified and I didn't own up to it. And they did three days of handwriting analysis to try and find who did these terrible drawings and eventually they identified me as the person who'd done them and sent me to to be disciplined by various senior members of the school who who like the when i think back about it now if if anything it was that when i think back to you know having had a daughter myself and knowing what 7 and 8 year olds are like remembering getting in trouble and it was like catastrophic to get in that amount of trouble for that particular thing and this the person that was disciplining me was like you know you disgusting girl you know if you ever do this again we'll tell your parents and really really unforgivable not just victim blaming but victim punishing and as horrendous as that memory is now it is the memory of that that gives me this sort of steely determination to tell this story no matter how difficult it is. Because I tell you what, if if I can save one kid 
you know, from have, from getting that second layer of victim blaming uh, by helping people understand a bit more about how um, this stuff can present in in little kids, then I feel like I've this is a I'd count that as a massive win. Uh, did it help you to know that you weren't the only one? Like now, has that helped you knowing that? Not really. Look, it doesn't help me because part of like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't speak out about being about sexual violence, especially as a kid. After I got in trouble about those drawings, I did not breathe a word of it. I didn't tell a soul until I was in my mid-20s and seeing a psychiatrist. It was the first time I told a soul. Like and so at around that same time was when I was find, I found out that there were other girls and I spoke to some of them. They were grown women by then and it didn't make me feel better. I felt really guilty. I felt guilty like I should have, like there was no way I had the capacity to at that age and given the type of um, punishment I got for showing signs that the abuse was happening, like, I really went to incredible lengths to hide it. Um, so, and I still feel a sense of guilt and I do think it's misplaced guilt because there's only so much that we can bear and so much that we can do as survivors. But, you know, one of the things that just does make me quite upset is the idea that he could still be out there doing this. I've really had to wrestle with, with this. Um, so, no, it didn't make me feel better. Um, but, but, you know, feeling ashamed and blaming ourselves, that's kind of, that's the way it goes for sexual survivors of sexual assault and sexual violence. So I, I experience it at the same time as I recognise it. And, you know, ultimately it, my job is to recover and regroup from it and be um, the best parent I can be to my daughter and to, you know, my all my academic research is focused on issues of sex and gender. So I really channel, I channel my activism um, that way. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What made you go to see a psychiatrist? Um, I was, so like many um, kids who've been abused, I developed a lot of mental health problems and I really acted out 
I'm in my late teens. I cut myself every day. I had an eating disorder. I was very depressed. Um, I tried to take my life when I was 17. Again, though, as a very tenacious person, I recognised that, you know, there was a chance that I wasn't going to live. And I made a decision to go put myself into therapy at a very young age. I put myself into therapy before I even finished high school. Like, um, So I've been seeing um, different sort of therapists. And then I guess in my 20s, uh, my depression and anxiety and what I now recognise and know as the symptoms of complex PTSD were becoming more pronounced. So I went to a psychiatrist because psychiatrists can um, prescribe medication. So she'd put me on antidepressants sort of in my early 20s. And did that help? Skills, not pills is the line that psychiatrists like to rattle off. And, and it's to me, it's like skills and pills. Like for me, antidepressants sort of take the edge off. Like they usually stop me, but not always, from plunging regularly into the lowest of lows where life doesn't seem worth living. So for the most part, they sort of smooth out that end of things. Uh, but I'm still quite mel- – like I have a lot of – I have a lot of mental illness diagnoses and so I manage these conditions actively. So do, do, do does medication help? It's helped me a bit, uh, but it's just part of a, a much larger toolkit that I use to manage myself. Um, and talk to me about the undiagnosed autism. Uh, I... So I've had a, I've had a few sort of uh, spectacular mental health crises over my lifetime and one of them was just towards the end of the first COVID lockdown in 2020 when a single parent managing, you know, mental illness in myself. I have a a teenage daughter who also has quite a few mental health issues. We were locked down together, trying to work from home, trying to, uh, my daughter is non-binary, so they prefer they. So I was trying to help them do their homeschooling. And I held it all together, as I usually do during the crisis. So for months and months, I held it all together. And then the moment the sort of lockdowns eased and my daughter was able to go back to their dad's for a bit, you know, after months and months and months of it just being the two of us, I completely had what in the, you know, the olden days might have been called a nervous breakdown. Like I just could not function. So I rang a suicide helpline and the phone dropped out halfway through the call, um, which has happened all the time in my neighbourhood since COVID. I think it's something to do with the telecommunications network being under such pressure. And because the line had dropped out and I was getting annoyed with the phone counsellor, because it felt like he was reading off a script. And I thought, oh, you know, stuff it. If he's worried about me, he can just call back on my mobile. You know, they get that when you ring. But he didn't call back. He he alerted emergency services and three police arrived at my door and an ambulance full of paramedics. Um, and they sectioned me in a mental health, um, the, the nearest sort of public psych hospital, in, and I mean, I was only there, I think I was there for about six hours or something. I was assessed and allowed to leave straight away. I, it was a, it was a, an overreaction, I think, on the, beha- on the part of the police. Did but you have a choice about going? I thought I did. Um, but so the way it happened is one of, the, one of the downsides of having autism is that 
I tend to answer questions very literally. And so when the the counselor on the suicide helpline said, have you considered killing yourself? I was like, well, yes. Why else would I be calling you? And he said, have you thought about how to do it? And I was like, well, obviously. And I went into incredibly sort of nerdy detail about the clinical thresholds of the antidepressant that I'm taking. And I said, for instance, I know that if I took blah, 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 then I'd only need to take blah, 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 blah. And so I did this big Aspie rave about, I probably sounded like I'd done a lot more serious thinking than someone else who perhaps rang the crisis line that day. But so I didn't have any choice in that counsellor calling the police when the line dropped out or the ambulance. The police were really, uh, they were difficult. Like um, they were very pushy and they kept saying, do this. Like they they said, you let us into the house now. And I said, I'd rather not because I'm immune compromised. Can we just talk through the door? And they said, if you don't let us in, we'll, we'll section you. And I was like, okay, come in. All right all right, give me every medication you've got in the house. And I was like, well, that's going to take a, a bit of time, but, you know, do, do do I have to? If you don't give us every medication in the house, we'll section you. So there was a series of threats of sectioning me and I kept doing what they said. And then there was a new sort of ultimatum. And eventually they said, all right, you need to still go and get assessed at a psych hospital and if you don't do that, we'll section you. And I was like, oh, whatever. So I got in the ambulance and went. And then I got there thinking I was turning up voluntarily, but they sectioned me against my will anyway. Like it was really, look, it makes a good story now. Like at the time even I was more bemused than anything else. Um, when I was got being taken to the psych ward, I was chatting with the paramedics in the ambulance and I said, look, I'm really sorry for wasting your time. I don't feel like... I need to be going to hospital um, and I'm sure you've got other people you could be helping. And I'll never forget what the woman said to me and she was just like, you know, you're not wasting our time. Most of the time we get these calls, we don't find a person, we find a body. And I thought, wow, like I actually thought it's actually, even though I felt like overkill in my case, I did feel grateful that mental health is taken that seriously. Mm. When I look at your body of work and then when I hear you talk about that, and this is just my ignorance and I'm learning just by talking to you, you seem so accomplished, you know, and you seem to be able to sit back from, you know, taking a bird's eye view and writing in detail. You're an academic writer and writing about sex and gender and writing about misogyny and writing about all of that in, in, you know, really insightful and interesting writing. And you've presented to the Australian Human Rights Commission, yet you're so in your own self, you sound to me to be so unsure and so troubled. Is that, yeah, that's my ignorance here. You know, I'm just wondering how that happens. Uh, um, how do you mean unsure and troubled? So you're just telling me this story of, of feeling suicidal, feeling anxious, feeling, you know, all, all those things that you're feeling, Yeah. mental health issues, I guess you'd call them, and being so accomplished at the same time. So I guess it's like those of us with mental illnesses love looking up all the famous artists and inventors and scientists and writers who had severe mental health problems. And I think that, I don't know, like it's really easy to glamorise it. I've heard people say you've got to be a bit mad to be a great 
insert whatever in the box artist, visionary, writer. In my case, like I don't know why uh, these things all coexist in me. It's just that they do. But the fact that I can talk about it, like with what you mentioned, that idea of a bird's eye view, that is really, it's a result of 30 years of therapy. Like I've spent a fortune on therapy. I could have I could have bought, had a paid off a house in Sydney with the money that I've spent on therapy. I've dedicated myself to rebuilding after being destroyed by a pedophile. Mm. And I don't know. How- just you just haven't just lived your life. I mean, you've lived a highly accomplished life. I guess in some ways that's where I did get lucky in that. I've got some natural skills that I've also spent a lifetime honing. Mm. Um, But, you know, in a weird and kind of sad way, like overachievement, um, it was kind of one of my coping mechanisms and it's still something I, I guess it's going to sound like such a first world problem, but for me, like, for instance, as a kid, I just put everything into my schoolwork, like to forget everything it wasn't to forget everything else it was like I felt so deficient like I felt so uh, my opinion of myself was so low because that's how a lot of pedophiles work is that they you know they brainwash you so that they can control you you know as a child and so I just really I studied to a really unhealthy degree and I was perfectionistic to a really unhealthy degree. And, in fact, one of the tipping points for leaving Year 12 was that, you know, I had these subjects and in my mind I had to always come first in. And I came second in English one time and it I, I completely – I, well, at the time it was like I was broken. I couldn't do an exam after that. Like, like so that's how um, fragile that particular coping mechanism was. And I, that's one of the reasons I kind of have mixed feelings about some of the achievements that I've been able to clock up because some of them were trauma related. Uh, I really wish I could be, um, for instance, a lazier person. <laughs> and I know it sounds like I'm always doing, uh, you know, six million things at once and, you know, doing everything in a, you know, like I over-prepare for interviews like this, I over-prepare for my teaching. I I wish that I could just chill a little bit. <laughs> but, no, my my chill switch is not definitely has never worked no just overlay your career for me into how you got to be an associate professor talk to me about that uh so I spent three years as a cadet journalist on a country newspaper then I worked um for seven years at the Sydney Morning Herald and during that time I started work on my first novel and it was a crime really sort of gory crime novel based on I spent many years as a as a police rounds person and then a crime reporter and then a court reporter so I'd spent a lot of time with dead people basically um people who died in terribly violent ways Uh, at the same time I'd always played music so I was playing in bands I started doing sort of radio and television work 
towards the end of that particular time. And then I was, I moved to the Australian. And at that point, I was writing a weekly column. Uh, and there was a period in my life where I was doing a lot of like media, like radio, television, print stuff, playing in bands, like, and then things sort of settled, sort of settled a bit. And I noticed that the media landscape was changing. This was like after close to 20 years in print media. And I could see that print media, or I suspected it wasn't going to survive the disruption caused by technology. And so I started um, a master's degree at night. I'd written maybe five or books or six books by then. And I did my master's degree at night around my full-time job in journalism. And then I just love, I fell in love with study. I fell in love with extreme reading. Like I find it really hard to read fiction now, don't tell anyone. Um, I really like dense nonfiction, really difficult nonfiction, extreme reading I call it. And I loved, I loved studying so much that I immediately enrolled in a PhD. Uh, and by then I was still working. I just accidentally got pregnant. I got pregnant on the pill, would you believe it? I'd never planned to have kids and suddenly I was pregnant and starting a PhD and still working. And so I did the PhD. I've been a single parent for most of my daughter's life. Um, and then just before I finished my PhD, I was able to get a job at my current uni at UNSW where I've been now 11 years based on my industry experience because I hadn't quite finished my PhD. And then I made this kind of enormous career change. Uh, still feel like I'm in a state of culture shock in academia, but I'm getting used to it. And then I I really struggled initially making that change. Like academia is a very wacky place sometimes, a very um, odd to outsiders and I was so overwhelmed by it. So it took me a while to find my feet, but I, I've i run some really big research projects into cyber violence and misogyny on the internet uh, and published a lot academically as a result of that research. And so I, yeah, so I was promoted to associate professor, I think in 2019 or something. Oh gosh, I mean Emma, I'm, I'm in awe of you. <laughs> I really, really. Well, all those, yeah, absolutely. You obviously don't sleep very much. <laughs> I wish I slept more. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling a little bit lazy. But listen, we've run out of time. Wonderful for you to share share your story with us. The book is called Diagnosis Normal. Thank you so much, Emma. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device.
Belinda. We're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.